Welcome everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 101. This episode is entitled The Toprakakale Shuttle, an ancient spacecraft. But first up this week from the ancientorigins.net website, Tunnel Vision, the mysterious forced entry of the Caliph into the Great Pyramid of Giza. The classical account of the discovery of the upper chambers inside the Great Pyramid at Giza is well known. In the 9th century, an Arab governor of Cairo, known as the Caliph al-Mamun, decided to see for himself what lay inside the Great Pyramid. Because the entrance to the pyramid was concealed and its location unknown, his workers began to excavate a tunnel boldly through the casing and core blocks with hammers and chisels. Fortuitously for the Caliph, their busy tunnelling shook the structure so much that the capstone fell off the end of the ascending passage. The resonating crash was heard by the workers, who dug in that direction and found not only the descending passage, but also the ascending passage and all the upper chambers in the pyramid. After thousands of years lying undisturbed in sleep inside the Great Pyramid, the king's and queen's chambers were finally open, and their treasure would soon belong to the caliph. But as the story goes, there was no treasure. Apparently this most ancient and precious of cupboards was completely bare. There were not only no burial artefacts, but no burial and no inscriptions either. The first thought to cross the mind of the caliph must have been that the tomb had been robbed. But how? Even if the secret well shaft deep inside the pyramid had been found at this stage, it is hardly a suitable tunnel through which to strip a wealthy burial chamber totally bare. So, where was all the loot? The caliph and his excavators must not have only been very exasperated after all their work, but mystified too. Are we so sure that this is what really happened? just over a millennia ago? Are we simply complacent because this is what has been taught to us by respected authorities for centuries? After all, it is much easier to simply agree with the established consensus of opinion rather than thinking positively and laterally about the problem. Fortunately, there are a few individuals out there who are more than happy to challenge a whole raft of classical myths. And so it was one day that a short email arrived in Ralph Ellis's inbox from a like-minded colleague, Mark Foster. Mark had an idea that had been bothering him for some time, and he wanted to throw it about a bit. A quick read convinced Ralph that it was a highly original idea, definitely worth some future thought. After a few debates here and there, the following alternative scenario to the classical story developed which is quite attractive in many respects. Yet this new explanation not only answers some irritating puzzles, 
it also poses some interesting and fundamental questions in return. As Mark explained, the basic problem with the classical explanation was that Mamun's tunnel is rather too accurate for comfort. It tracks into the pyramid in a direct line for the all-important junction between the descending and ascending passageways. It is often cited that Mamun had to turn the tunnel sharp left to discover the original passageways, a fact that Ralph and Mark had in the back of their minds when they first visited the Great Pyramid. But as Ralph and Mark ambled down the forced tunnel, they were both rather mystified, because the left turn cited in the literature could not be found. Having backtracked the tunnel and tried again, that left turn seemed to be no more than a slight widening of the tunnel at this point. In actual fact, the diggings were almost right on their target. So how did this happen? Was Mamun just lucky and happened to pick the right spot? Or did he have an idea of where to go? There is also the problem of why Mamun was tunnelling inside the pyramid in the first place. Not only was the presence of the true entrance to the pyramid well known in classical times, but people were also aware of the descending passage and the subterranean cavern at the very bottom of the pyramid. Strabo says of the original entrance to the Great Pyramid, The Great Pyramid, a little way up on one side, has a stone that may be taken out, which being raised up there is a sloping passage to the foundations. Strabo seems to be describing a door made of stone that is movable in some way. It can be moved upwards and outwards at the same time. This sounds like a hinged flap arrangement, with the hinge at the top of the stone. So, was this description mere fantasy or historical fact? We do not exactly know, but Strabo was obviously very familiar with the internal layout of the lower portions of the pyramid, as he calls the lower cavern the foundations, rather than using the more obvious term chamber. And Strabo is right, because the void below the pyramid is much more of a rough-hewn cavern than a smooth rectangular chamber. And we know that the entrances to the Giza pyramids were known about in ancient times because some of them are quite obvious. Take a look at the entrance to the third pyramid, where only the stones around the entrance have been smoothed down. Nobody could mistake the position of the entrance to this pyramid, and it is likely that the position of the entrance to the Great Pyramid was equally obvious. But it is important to note that the ascending passage in the Great Pyramid had been carefully concealed by the builders, so nobody in this early era knew about the Queen's and King's chambers high up inside the pyramid. The only chamber in the Great Pyramid that was open and known about in this era was the rough cavern at the very bottom of the pyramid, which Strabo accurately terms as the Foundations. Sir Flinders Petrie backed this quotation up with a detailed study of the entrances to the Vega, or Bent Pyramid, the only pyramid that still has the doorways around the entrance intact. He found that on either side of the entrance there were holes cut opposite each other, about 9 centimetres in diameter and 14 centimetres deep. These holes were just inside the entrance and only 15 centimetres from the top of the passage. Petrie, not unreasonably, interpreted these as being the hinge sockets to swing the stone door from. 
Behind these sockets, the passageway contained more door sockets. These were smaller vertical sockets for a very lightweight door, perhaps made of wood and presumably to keep out the wind-blown sand. The diagrams in this article were developed by Petrie based on his analysis of the Vega or Bent Pyramid entrance. The hinge stone door is clearly marked as a large shaded stone. It needs to be this shape, with a long top extending outwards in order to counterbalance the weight of the stone. The amount of counterbalance at the top would have been judiciously arranged by the architect, so that the force required to open the stone was within normal human limitations, say about 25 kilograms of force. Here then we have clear evidence that a movable entrance stone was fitted to the Great Pyramid and that the descending passage had been visited perhaps many times throughout recorded history. To gain entry to the pyramid, however, was still not easy, unless there was a flight of steps cut into the now missing casing blocks. A series of ladders would have to be erected against the side of the pyramid to reach the door. Presumably the entry stone must have had a handle of some sort on which to pull, and then it would need a prop of some nature to keep it open. While the new initiate scrambled into the thin hull and down the descending passage... A knotted rope would also have to be fed slowly down the length of the passage to allow for an easy exit from the dark and foreboding depths of the sacred pyramid. Undoubtedly, all of this frenetic activity would have scratched and pitted the entrance to the pyramid over the millennia in a very obvious fashion. Yet, it is generally accepted that the casing blocks must have been intact during the rule of Mamun as the casing blocks appear to have been used by Sultan Hassan for the construction of his mosque in 1356. The question is, therefore, why could Mamun not see all these telltale marks and the original entrance to the pyramid that lay only a few metres above him? Why could he not see the handle on the door or the scuff marks on the smooth exterior? And knowledge of the location of the true entrance must still have been known in this era. So why could none of the locals be persuaded to point it out? And this apparent invisibility of the original entrance could not have been because it was covered by sand, for instance, because Mamun's tunnel lies below the level of the real entrance. So what was the problem? Why was so much effort expended in digging a new tunnel when the original entrance lay just above it? Some very important questions have been posed here. Why couldn't Mamun not see the real entrance to the Great Pyramid when it was so well known and so close to his own entrance? And if Mamun did not know where the real entrance was, then why was his alternative tunnel so accurate? But if the original entrance was known about, then how did Mamun discover the ascending passage, which had been carefully concealed when the pyramid was first built? This is a bit of a catch-22. Having considered this problem... Mark Foster had an idea that Mamun already knew about the original entrance and the descending passage, but he had constructed his new forced entry tunnel for another reason entirely. Perhaps to get around the granite plug blocks in the ascending passage, perhaps to get the necessary equipment into the right position to dig around those blocks. But if Mamun did not discover the ascending passage while he was creating his new forced tunnel, then How did he know it was there? 
The ascending passage was, after all, completely secret and unexplored at this time. So how did Mamun discover it? Mark and Ralph both came to the same conclusions on this topic. The key to discovering the ascending passage lies outside the Great Pyramid, just to the east of the base and to the north of the causeway. Here there lies what Petrie called the Trial Passage, which is simply a foreshortened replica of the Great Pyramid's descending passage and the all-important junction with the ascending passage. As everything on the plateau has a purpose, why is this passageway there? Petrie thought it was a test bed that the architect had used to test out the procedures for laying out the internal passageways in the pyramid. This suggestion is a definite possibility. However, both Mark and myself think that this is not a trial passage, but instead a guide passage. And what do we mean by guide passage? Well, any interested party looking into this short passage system will clearly see the similarity and symmetry with the real descending passage inside the Great Pyramid. But a little further down this guide passage, they will come across a junction with another ascending passageway. The idea might just dawn on someone that the real pyramid passageways just might have exactly the same configuration. Thus the ascending passage was quite possibly found by Mamun's men entering the original entrance to the pyramid and tap-tapping down the ceiling of the descending passage, searching for that elusive ascending passageway that was hinted at by the guide passageways outside. Success at last, the men found a concealed entrance. But as they were not able to penetrate the granite plugs that blocked this ascending shaft, a small tunnel was dug through the softer limestone core blocks around the granite plugs and up into the ascending passage. Mamun was at last able to enter the Queen's and King's chambers and to plunder the priceless treasures of the old kingdom pharaohs. Mamun was about to become the richest man in the known world. This is all very well as scenarios go, readers might say. But if this is the case, then why did Mamun go to the trouble of excavating his forced tunnel into the pyramid? Surely the classical explanation is correct. Mamun must have come in via this crude excavation into the pyramid... Perhaps, but here is where Ralph's traditional lateral thinking comes into play. Tunnels are not only useful for getting in, but also for getting out. It is highly probable that the real reason for constructing the forced tunnel was not to get into the pyramid, but rather to get something out. Whatever it was though, it must have been small enough to go down the first part of the ascending passage but it was too long to go around the bend between the descending and ascending passageways. The only alternative for these intrepid but highly destructive explorers was to dig a tunnel directly outwards from the junction of the two passageways, completely bypassing the internal passageway constriction. This proposal neatly explains all of the questions posed above. The original entrance had been known about and used, and the reason for the uncanny accuracy of the force tunnel is now also obvious, because it was started from the inside and dug outwards. It could be nothing other than accurate. This may also explain why so much rubble was later found in the bottom of the descending passage, 
because it came from the Force Tunnel's excavations, which started on the inside rather than the outside. So, what was the long, thin treasure that Mamun had found and taken from the inside of the Great Pyramid? Had the king's chamber been filled with sacred and valuable artefacts, and the long, thin mummy of a great and ancient king? Had Mamun discovered a king's ransom in bullion? Perhaps, but Ralph thinks that the real answer is probably more prosaic and poignant than this. Mamun laboriously climbed his way up the 41.2 cubits of swaying ladders to the original entrance of the Great Pyramid, a difficult task for a portly caliph and a worrying moment for his advisers. After a short slide down the descending passage to the junction with the ascending passage, he entered the small rough shaft that his men had dug around the granite plug blocks and scrambled into the ascending passage. From there he struggled up the grand gallery, his men cautiously pushing his chubby buttocks from behind. Sweating and cursing, he finally crawled on hands and knees into the king's chamber, a degrading and exhausting experience that no caliph had endured either before or since. Mamun was flustered, even angry, but also elated. Although he had been briefed that the king's chamber was basically empty, what it did possess was an untouched, enigmatic and completely sealed sarcophagus. This was the prize that justified these privations. Caliph al-Mamun was going to be at the opening of this sarcophagus at whatever cost. He was not about to let his chief vizier run off with the treasures of the old kingdom pharaohs of Egypt, or perhaps even the secrets of the gods themselves. A disorganised rabble of workmen arrived and prized at the coffer lid with crowbars. They cursed and swore and shouted, but the lid just would not budge. Finally, in a state of ecstatic anticipation, Mamun pushed the rabble aside and ordered the coffer to be smashed with sledgehammers. The chief gaffer aimed a few heavy blows and with a great crash, one corner of the sarcophagus flew open and the result of his endeavours are still visible to this day. Mamun ordered the workers away, yelled for silence, grabbed a flickering lamp from a soldier and approached the hole in trepidation. Then the significance of the moment struck him. He was standing inside the greatest of all the world's ancient monuments, a structure rumoured to have been constructed by the gods themselves. Here at the very heart of this sacred monument lay a simple, unadored, solitary black granite coffer that had been sealed for thousands of years. And he, Caliph al-Mamun, was going to be the first to see inside. His hand began to tremble at the thought, and he quickly steadied it with the other, lest the workers see him as apprehensive. He carefully thrust the lamp into the sarcophagus, but the flame on the lamp flickered, and it was difficult to see. But at last the flame steadied, and he saw for himself that the sarcophagus was empty. Caliph al-Mamun was absolutely livid, suspecting perhaps that one of his workers had manufactured this little rouse. He flew into a violent rage and vented his anger on a few unfortunate victims of summary justice. However, there was no way that Mamun was going to go back to his palace from this escapade empty-handed. After all, he had been through. But the chamber only contained the sarcophagus, and it was quite obvious that it was bigger than the entrance to the chamber. 
as a consolation prize, they found that the lid of the sarcophagus could be turned diagonally and just about squeeze through the king's chamber's tough granite entrance blocks. Mamun was going to have it as a memento at all costs. Unfortunately for the workers, however, after sliding the great block of stone down the grand gallery, they found that the lid was not going to squeeze around the plug blocks and into the descending passage. Besides, the lid must have weighed a tonne, and if it ever got into the descending passage, nobody could think of a way of preventing it from plunging all the way down to the bottom of the pyramid. In addition, the original entrance stone was far too small to get the lid through. It was all becoming a bit of a nightmare. Spurred on by an enraged caliph, the chief of engineering eventually came up with an answer. The only practical solution to this problem was to force a new tunnel from the junction of the descending and ascending passageways horizontally through the core blocks of the pyramid and into the open air. This is Mamun's forced tunnel. It started inside and made its way outwards, and this is why it appears to be so accurate in its trajectory. So, where did the lid from the king's chamber eventually go? Ralph and Mark have sometimes been accused of layering speculation upon speculation, but this one is too obvious not to mention in passing. The caliph was quite obviously a Muslim. At the centre of the sacred Islamic city of Mecca lies a plaza that draws the faithful from all over the world during the Hajj. In the middle of this plaza lies a simple cubic building or chamber, the Kaaba. On one corner of the Kaaba lies the holiest relic in the Muslim world, the Hijar al-Aswad, the Black Stone. This relic is simply six fragments of black granite, of unknown origin, stuck together and placed in a Vesica Piscis shroud. And if you visit the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to episode 101 of the Mysteries Abound podcast, and then on the link to this article, there are a number of photographs, drawings and diagrams accompanying this article. And from the www.independent.co.uk website, a story by Antonia Malloy. Van Gogh was murdered, claims a forensic expert. He did not shoot himself. The true nature of Vincent Van Gogh's death continues to be a topic ripe for mystery, after a leading forensics expert has claimed that the artist was murdered. The Sunflowers painter died an agonising 29 hours after taking a bullet to the abdomen in a wheat field near Paris in 1890. On his deathbed, he apparently revealed he had shot himself. However, Dr Vincent de Mayo, an expert on gunshot injuries, has said that he believes the wound was not self-inflicted. According to Vanity Fair, Di Mayo, who was a key witness at the George Zimmerman trial, said that it was highly likely that Van Gogh did not shoot himself. He made the claim in response to a request by Stephen Nefay and Gregory White Smith, whose biography of Van Gogh 
disputes the long-held suicide theory. In Van Gogh, The Life, a 960-page book published in 2011, the Pulitzer Prize-winning authors claim that the artist had been shot, possibly accidentally, by a couple of boys, and that he had decided to protect them by accepting the blame. American academic John Rule had talked of hearing local rumours about such a theory in the 1930s. But Nefay and Smith were attacked for publishing their theory, and in 2013, Louis Van Tilburgh and Theo Miedendorp published a critical review in the Burlington magazine which reiterated the suicide narrative. Following this, Nefay and Smith asked DeMayo to compare the two accounts and put forth his opinion. Van Tilburgh and Miedendorp wrote that the son of the attendant physician at Van Gogh's deathbed, Paul Jr., said, Van Gogh's wound had a brown and purple halo around it. According to the authors, this meant the gun must have been fired at very close range and was caused by the bullet's impact. But DeMayo said, in fact, the purple halo is subcutaneous bleeding from the vessels cut by the bullet and is usually seen in individuals who live a while. Its presence or absence means nothing. Meanwhile, he said the brown ring is an abrasion ring and seen around virtually all entrance wounds. DeMayo also said that if Van Gogh did shoot himself, there would have been soot, powder tattooing and searing of the skin around the entrance. He said, These would have been grossly evident. None of this is described in any of the forensic accounts. This indicates the muzzle was more than a foot or two away, closer to two rather than one. In conclusion, he said, It is my opinion that in all medical probability... The wound incurred by Van Gogh was not self-inflicted. In other words, he did not shoot himself. However, it may take more than de Mayo to sway academic opinion. A curator at the Van Gogh Museum told Nefay and Smith in an email, I think it would be like Vincent to protect the boys and take the accident as an unexpected way out of his burden life. But I think the biggest problem you'll find after publishing your theory is that the suicide is more or less printed in the brains of past and present generations and has become a sort of self-evident truth. Vincent's suicide has become the grand finale of the story of the martyr for art. It's his crown of thorns. The Thropgrakale Shuttle is a well-known artefact among ancient astronaut investigators. Author and investigator Zakaria Sitchin traced this artefact down in a museum in Istanbul, Turkey. It was not on display because the curators thought it was a falsification. The artefact, named after the Thropgrakale site where it was found, seemed to resemble a rocket ship with an astronaut sitting in it. Therefore, it could not be very old so they thought. From the ancientvisitors.blogspot.com Toprak Kale Shuttle, an ancient spaceship? In ancient times, the 9th century BC, it was known as Tushpa, 
the capital of the kingdom of Uratu. Tushpa was founded by the building of a fortress at the west end of the citadel of Fan. The walls of this ancient Uratian fortress, which is often simply referred to as Toprakkale, are special because they are built with Cyclopean masonry. This means that the walls are constructed without mortar, with huge stone blocks. This construction method was already legendary for the ancient Greeks, who imagined such walls could only be built by a race of giants called Cyclops. Cyclopean masonry is found in Europe in Mycenaean buildings, but also on other continents, for example at Machu Picchu, Peru and other pre-Columbian sites. The fortress at Tushpa had inscriptions of the Iratian king Sarduri I in Assyrian. Sarduri I reigned from 834 to 828 BC and is best known for moving the capital of the Uratu kingdom to Tushpa. It is remarkable that the Tushpa inscriptions, besides claiming that Sarduri I founded the site, describe the transportation of the giant blocks from a town called Alniu. Such inscriptions usually describe conquests and victories, glorious facts about a particular ruler. Why would the writers have taken the trouble to describe a simple building process? Maybe because it was not so simple, and the writers needed to explain how the blocks weighing up to 30 or 40 tonnes each, and with a bulk of over 5 cubic metres, got there. The location of Al Niu is thought to be on the northeast shore of Lake Van. The blocks could not have been transported far, scholars argue. The purpose of the megalithic structure remains undetermined. Was it actually Sarduri I who built it? Or is the structure much older, and did he try to claim it as his own? It is a coincidence that at such a mysterious site, an object was found that looks like a rocket ship? Zakaria Sitchin describes the object as a sculpted-scale model of what, to modern eyes, looks like a cone-nosed rocket ship, powered by a cluster of four exhaust engines in the back surrounding a larger exhaust engine. The rocket ship has room for a sole pilot actually shown and included in the sculpture. Could the blocks have been transported from much farther away? using technology like rocket ships to put them in place. This is just speculation, of course, but why would the ancient inhabitants of Tushpa create such an artefact if they had never seen aeroplanes or rocket ships before? And if you visit the show notes and click on the link to this article, there is a photograph of the artefact, and it certainly does look like a rocket ship. Quite amazing, really. And from the LiveScience.com, an article by Tina Ghosts. A mysterious glowworm has been discovered in the Peruvian rainforest. A mysterious glowing worm has been discovered lighting up the soil in the Peruvian rainforest. The strange glowworms, which are thought to be the larval stage of an as yet unidentified species of beetle, may use their phosphorescence to lure unsuspecting flies and ants into their waiting open jaws. 
Ants or termites will fly right into their jaws and then they'll just clamp shut and that's their meal, said Aaron Pomerantz, an entomologist working with the Rainforest Expedition Company at the Refugio Amazonas near Tambapata Research Centre in Peru, where the glowing lava were discovered. In tests, the glowworms readily devoured stick insects and termites, Pomerantz said. Their style of attack seems similar to that of the enormous man-eating worms in the 1990 campy movie Tremors, albeit at a much smaller scale, he said. They're underground and they burst from the earth, Pomerantz told Live Science. Nature photographer Jeff Kremer found the tiny pinpricks of light glowing in a wall of earth when he was working at a lodge in the Peruvian jungle. On closer inspection, Kremer discovered several dozen of these tiny insects, which measured about half an inch, shining green in the night. Kremer brought them to the attention of entomologists who work at the Rainforest Nature Lodge, who had never seen anything similar in the region. The team determined that the worms were the larva of an unknown species of click beetle. These beetles use a fast popping or clicking motion to escape predators, Pomerantz said. Adults may feed on flowers and nectar, but the larvae are probably predatory. There are more than 10,000 species of click beetles, including about 200 that are bioluminescent, meaning that they give off light. These strange little creatures may potentially be cousins of Brazilian fire beetles and could belong to the group of bugs called Pyrophorini, Pomerantz said. Brazilian fire beetles burrow into termite mounds, creating ethereal glowing towers at night, Pomerantz said. Though it's not exactly clear how the newly discovered insects produce light, similar creatures use a class of molecules known as luciferins to give off their ghostly yellow glow. Pyrophorini typically maintain a constant glow through the night and may even shine brighter when a predator touches them. Bioluminescent animals usually glow to either lure in their prey or to warn predators that they contain noxious chemicals. But the glowing also occasionally serves other purposes. For instance, fireflies blinking is essentially a come-hither signal for potential mates, Pomerantz said. In the case of the click beetle larva, it seems the creatures glow to lure in prey, Pomerantz said. The Brazilian click beetles aggregate in termite mounds and glow to attract more prey. Right now the team isn't sure if it's discovered a completely new species or a new subspecies of an already known species of beetle larva, but the researchers are contacting experts in Brazil to find out. And if you'd like to see a photograph of the glowworm, just visit the show notes and click on the link to this article. From the Unsolved Mysteries in the World website at the unmissed3.blogspot.com.au Three stories, written by Tripsybit. The first is the secret chamber of Belvedere House. Belvedere House, now the National Library of India, which is located in Alipur, India, was built in the days of the Raj. 
It was one of the buildings which Mir Jafar built in the 1760s in Alipur after he was forced to abdicate his throne in Murshidabad. The complex now includes within it two housing colonies built by the government, one being for National Library of India employees and the other for central government employees. The main building is under the care of the Archaeological Survey of India. It has always been reputed to be haunted, but the recent discovery of a secret chamber in the building has added more mystery to the premises. The archaeologists who discovered it have no clue how to open it. Their theories range from a torture chamber, or a sealed tomb for an unfortunate soul, or the most favoured of all, a treasure room. Originally Belvedere House was a former palace of the Viceroy of India, and later the Governor of Bengal. From 1854 to 1911, Belvedere housed a number of Lieutenant Governors till the British capital shifted to Delhi. Supernatural activity reported throughout the years include lights being turned on and off in the ballroom, ghostly carriages thundering up the drive, and ghostly figures seen flitting around the rooms. In 2010, a mysterious room has been discovered in the 250-year-old building, a room that no one knew about and no one can enter because it seems to have no opening of any kind, not even trapdoors. A lot of effort has been made to locate an opening so that experts can find out exactly what it was built for or what it contains. But there is not a single crack to show. Tapan Bhattachara, the Deputy Superintending Archaeologist of ASI, said that they have searched every inch of the first floor that forms the ceiling of this enclosure for a possible trapdoor, but found nothing. Restoration of the building will remain incomplete if they are not able to assess what lies inside this enclosure. Mystery of the Shugborough Inscription The eight-letter Shugborough inscription on the Shepherd's Monument in Staffordshire has baffled historians for 250 years and is considered one of the world's top uncracked text carvings. Its mysterious etchings were thought by some to contain clues as to the location of the Holy Grail. The inscription became widely known after being mentioned in the book entitled the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, written by Michael Bajant, Richard Lee and Henry Lincoln, which was published in 1982. Charles Darwin and Charles Dickens are both said to have attempted to crack the Shugborough Hall code and failed. The inscription is D-O-U-O-S-V-A-V-V-M carved below a mirror image of Nicolas Poisson's painting The Shepherds of Arcadia on the 18th century Shepherds Monument at Shugborough Hall in Staffordshire, England. History buff A.J. Morton says he cracked the code in a matter of weeks, something he attributes to his experience of researching gravestones and monuments around the world. Morton's solution allocates each of the letters on the monument to people and places associated with the Shugborough estate, and he admits that his findings will not be popular. People are rightly suspicious at first, he explains. There have been hundreds of attempted explanations, none of which have turned out to be terribly convincing.
It is very likely that Mary Venables Vernon of Sudbury Hall, the Baron Vernon of Derbyshire, the Honourable Edward Vernon Harcourt, and the First Viscount Anson of Orgreave and Shugborough were involved in the creation of the original Shugborough Code, he says. The Code has brought a lot of attention to Shugborough Hall over the years because people believed it to hold the key to the location of the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail theory originated from the conviction that the Anson family, who lived at Shugborough, were in the Priory of Sion, the secret society suspected as the successors to the Knights Templar and the guardians of the relics recovered from the Holy Grail, including the cup used by Christ at the Last Supper. Other theories came from Bletchley Park. At Bletchley, experts had shortlisted two theories as follows. The first theory, according to the veteran World War II cryptanalyst Sheila Lorne, she believes it's an ancient love note, and the code is an ancient Latin phrase. She says, I'm a romantic at heart, so maybe the Holy Grail cup is just a cup of love. Her husband Oliver prefers a more mystical solution, connected to the Knights Templar, keepers of the Holy Grail. Second theory came from an unnamed professional codebreaker. He came up with a Knights Templar message, Jesus H. Defy. The H is believed to stand for the Greek letter Chi, meaning Christ, and is thought to relate to Templar belief that Jesus was an earthly body, rather than celestial. Until now, several other theories have been proposed to crack the code, and these include suggestions of a biblical verse from Ecclesiastes and a memorial. The Rain of Blood Phenomenon The Rain of Blood, or the Blood Rain, is an unusual event and considered bad omens in antiquity. And this belief persisted through the Middle Ages and well into the early modern period. Occurrences of blood rain throughout history are distributed from the ancient to the modern day. The earliest literary instance is in Homer's Iliad, in which Zeus twice caused a rain of blood, on one occasion to warn of slaughter in a battle. The same portent occurs in the work of the poet Hesiod, writing around 700 BC. The author John Tatlock suggests that Hesiod's story may have been influenced by that recorded in the Iliad. The first century Greek biographer Plutarch also recounts a tradition of a reign of blood during the reign of Romulus, founder of Rome. Roman authors Livy and Pliny record some later cases of blood rain, with Livy describing it as a bad portent. In July 1841, Enslaved workers in a field in Wilson County, Tennessee, reported that just before noon, a small red cloud suddenly appeared in an otherwise clear sky. From the cloud fell a shower of blood, muscular fibre, adipose matter. In the words of a local physician, W.P. Sale, who examined it at the site, enclosing some samples, Sale wrote to a professor of chemistry at the University of Nashville. The particles I send you I gathered with my own hands. The extent of surface over which it spread and the regular manner it exhibited on some green tobacco leaves leave very little or no doubt of its having fallen like a shower of rain. I have sent what I think to be a drop of blood, 
the other particles composed of muscle and fat. Although the proportion of the shower appeared to be a much larger quantity of blood than of other properties. Another physician, G.W. Bassett of Virginia, recounted this event in the spring of 1850 in a letter to a colleague. About 4pm yesterday, being Good Friday, a small cloud passed over Mr. Chas H. Clark and several of my servants, a few paces from the south bank of the Pamunkey River in the lower end of Hanover County, Virginia, on the estate called Farmington and discharged around the parties, over a surface of something less than a rood of ground, various pieces of flesh and liver, too well defined in each sort to allow any mistake in their character. I gathered this morning from the spot, from four to six ounces, distributed over the above-mentioned surface. The pieces picked up at the remotest points, in a line from northwest to southeast, were about twenty-five paces from each other. One would weigh near an ounce. The direction of the cloud was from northeast to southwest, as described by Mr. Clark, who was a gentleman of intelligence and established credibility. Mr. Brown, with myself, visited the spot this morning and all aided in picking up 15 to 25 pieces which I have by me at this moment and from which I send you a sample and desire it may be passed over to Dr. Gibson that he may ascertain what sort of flesh it is. The flesh and liver are in a perfect state at this moment, and the latter part I shall put in alcohol for the future inspection of the curious. A similarly grisly rain is said to have taken place the previous February 15 in Simpson County, North Carolina, where pieces of flesh, liver, brains and blood, all looking fresh, fell out of a red cloud and splattered over an area 30 feet wide and 250 to 300 yards long. According to the San Francisco Herald of July 24, 1851, blood and flesh, with pieces ranging in size from a pigeon's egg to a small orange, descended in a two to three minute shower on an army station in Benicia, California, covering a spot of ground 30 yards wide and 300 yards long. On Sunday in July 1869, blood reportedly fell out of a clear sky and landed on two acres of a cornfield near Los Angeles. Those who saw it, a funeral party that included members of the clergy, had no doubt that the substance was blood. Not only was it a thick, vivid red, but it contained hairs and portions of organs. It is easier to believe that stories like these are wholly fictitious than it is to credit complacent assertions that the fallen material was really water coloured from dust or plant matter. Here, after all, we have rational, educated witnesses. These, moreover, are not the only such stories. A vividly red and blood-like rain during a storm on October 16 and 17, 1846, caused widespread terror among French witnesses. A chemist who studied the material under a microscope noted a great quantity of corpuscles. Rather more specifically, after a red stuff rained on Messinati Calabria, the Italian Meteorological Bureau identified it as bird's blood. On March 8, 1876, flakes of meat came down out of the sky to land on a Bath County, Kentucky field, and one brave witness tasted a perfectly fresh sample. It reminded him according to Scientific American, March 1876, of mutton or venison. 
This widely reported event sparked some considerable controversy and soon fell victim to two conventional, contradictory and unconvincing explanations. One was that the material was Nostok, blue-green algae, that had been there on the ground all along, but sprouted in the wake of a rain. In fact, the sky was clear during the fall. The second averred the material to buzzard vomit, even though it fell in thick volume, consisted of numerous flakes from one to four inches square and covered ground, trees and fences on a strip of land 100 yards long and 50 yards wide. In 1888, after a red rain fell on the Mediterranean region on two occasions 12 days apart, samples were burned, leaving a strong and persistent odour of animal matter, according to the French scientific journal La Astronomie. A rare 20th century instance was recorded in Sao Paulo, Brazil, on August 30, 1968, describing a meat-and-blood shower on two small towns between Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro. According to a terse statement from a law enforcement officer, the pieces of flesh were found lying a distance of half a metre apart, their size varying between lengths of 5 centimetres and 20 centimetres. The meat was of a spongy texture and violet in colour, and was accompanied by drops of blood. The sky at the time was quite clear. No aircraft had been seen just prior to, during or after the event, nor were there any birds in the sky. On the 25th of July to the 23rd of September 2001, the rain of blood phenomenon occurred on Kerala, known as the Kerala Red Rain Phenomenon, when heavy downpours of red-coloured rain fell sporadically on the southern Indian state of Kerala, staining clothes pink. Yellow, green and black rain was also reported. Coloured rain was also reported in Kerala in 1896 and several times since, most recently in June 2012. Following a light microscopy examination, it was initially thought that the rains were coloured by fallout from a hypothetical meteor burst, but a study commissioned by the Government of India concludes that the rains had been coloured by airborne spores from locally prolific terrestrial algae. It was not until early 2006 that the coloured rains of Kerala gained widespread attention when the popular media reported that Godfrey Lewis and Santosh Kumar of the Mahatma Gandhi University at Kottayam proposed a controversial argument that the coloured particles were extraterrestrial cells. Blood rains were also reported from the 15th of November 2012 to the 27th of December 2012 occasionally in eastern and north-central provinces of Sri Lanka, where scientists from the Sri Lanka Medical Research Institute, the MRI, are investigating to ascertain their cause. spate of Nessie sightings has flummoxed experts and locals alike. An unprecedented 18 months without a confirmed sighting, 
Several people have come forward in the past few weeks with reports of mysterious beasts emerging from the waters of Loch Ness. From the www.independent.co.uk website, has the mystery of the Log, L-O-G, Ness monster been solved? And this is written by Tom Borden. So, more than 80 years after the first modern sighting of Nessie, has the monster made a comeback? Alas, the truth could be a little more mundane. The Woodland Trust Conservation Charity has come forward with an infuriatingly humdrum explanation. They're just logs. The charity claims that deadfall, washed out by rivers from nearby Urquhart Bay Wood, would explain the recent sightings and possibly why the monster has been spotted so often in the past. Large amounts of wood flows out of the woodland through the two winding rivers that flow into Loch Ness each year, peaking when the water is high in late autumn and spring. I think that some of that debris explains the long, thin, sometimes stick-like shapes seen, says a spokesman for the Trust. Sightings of the Loch Ness Monster date back to the 6th century, and have been explained away as being boats, waves made by boats or other animals. The first modern sighting was in 1933 when a man called George Spicer and his wife saw a most extraordinary form of animal cross the road in front of their car. One of the more intriguing explanations came in 2006 when Neil Clark, the curator of paleontology at Glasgow's University Hunterian Museum, concluded two years of research by linking Nessie sightings to elephants. He said the theory made sense because the circuses that frequently visited Inverness in the past century would often stop on the banks of Loch Ness to give the animals a rest. The trunk and humps in the water would bear similarities to some of the most famous Nessie photographs. The circuses used to take the road up to Inverness and allow their animals to have a rest, swim about in the loch and refresh themselves. Dr. Clark said at the time. The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website. The bandwidth is provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. The show notes are kept at the Origins podcast website, www.origins.info. And don't forget to visit our Facebook page and find out what's happening with the podcasts and what sort of things I'm up to as well, www.facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy, or just click on the Facebook link at the show notes. No donations for a while, so nothing to report there, so... Let's move on to our final story. Those Who Dream by Day 
are cognizant of many things that escape those who dream only at night. And that's from Edgar Allan Poe, from Eleonora. From the creepypasta.com website, The Sandman, and this is credited to Tam Lin. Go to bed and wait for the Sandman. Even as it came out of James's mouth, it seemed to him a strange thing to say, and he was not sure why he had, but for some reason it worked. Daniel went to bed. The next morning, though, he asked, What does the Sandman look like? James was making breakfast. Daniel sat at the table, short legs swinging under his chair. Nothing really, James said. It's just an expression. What does it mean? Just something people say. He put a plate of eggs in front of Daniel and kissed him on the top of his head. He thought that would be the end of it. Until he saw the Sandman for himself. He was getting ready for bed and stopped by Daniel's room to check on him while he slept, as he often did. It was such a routine precaution that when he saw a pale, naked man sitting on the edge of Daniel's bed, rocking back and forth, it took a moment for him to process what he was seeing. He reacted the way any father would, of course. He ran into the room screaming, and for a moment he thought about attacking the intruder, but then the man on the bed turned... And that's where James saw that it wasn't really a man. It was a pale, slithery thing, hairless and warped. Its joints turned the wrong way, and its body out of shape with itself. When it moved, it was like an insane marionette dancing on a stage. James froze. The skittering thing watched him. He felt spreading warmth, and he realised he'd pissed his pants. Only when he remembered that Daniel was still there in the bed, staring at the broken-shaped thing sitting only a foot away, did he regain the courage to move. He grabbed Daniel and ran. Into the hall he turned to see if the thing would follow them, but it didn't. For a moment it watched and then, moving like a stop-motion nightmare, it crawled to the window and jumped out, leaving only the billowing curtains to mark its passing. James had trouble talking to the police. He reported a break-in, but when asked to describe the intruder, he didn't know what to say. How could he make the ordinary man in the blue uniform sitting at his kitchen table while two of his colleagues searched the house understand a thing like he'd seen? He couldn't even understand it himself. To make it worse, Daniel's memory did not correspond to James's. He described an ordinary-looking burglar. A man in a mask, he said. James thought about it. Had it been a mask? No, it would had to have been a full costume, and an elaborate one. Something like they would use for a movie. And that would not explain the way it moved. But in the end, he simply echoed his son's testimony. A man in a mask, he said. A burglar. The lie unsettled him almost as much as what had happened. The doctor said that Daniel wasn't hurt and showed no signs of molestation. James was relieved. They stayed at a motel for a couple of nights until they felt ready to come home and then James had a new security system installed along with bars on the windows. He didn't like the sight of them in Daniel's room. 
but it seemed like the only thing to do. James was frightened that first night back in the house, but Daniel, strangely, was not. When asked if he felt okay sleeping alone, he just said yes. In the end, it was James who found himself wishing he were not sleeping alone. He was up all night listening for the sound of anything moving in the house. Although he had convinced himself that his memory was faulty and that it had been a normal, albeit probably deeply disturbed man, in his son's room. When he closed his eyes, even for a moment, he pictured bloodless skin and a twisted, inhuman face. He found himself wondering, why my house? Why my family? He knew, of course, that there didn't have to be a reason, but he still wondered. Two weeks later, Daniel stopped talking. James didn't notice at first. Kids went through quiet phases sometimes. But eventually he tried to get Daniel to talk, and he wouldn't. Eventually it became clear that he couldn't. Back to the doctor they went. Nothing wrong with him that we can see was the diagnosis. Was it the trauma, James asked? Could be, they said. Sometimes these things come on late. Children can be a mystery even to those who know them best. They recommended a child psychologist whom James couldn't afford. He could not, for that matter, even afford the bill they were giving him now. Nothing seemed to help. Daniel would write out answers to questions sometimes, but never more than a yes or no. When James would ask him what was wrong or if he'd seen or heard anything that frightened him, Daniel would only stare. He seemed furtive and bemused. James found himself missing the sound of his son's voice. Sometimes he wanted to hear it so bad that he ached. But it seemed that Daniel would not talk again until he was ready. James had other things to worry about too. He was convinced beyond reason that the intruder was not really gone. Though the alarm never went off and the locks and bars remained undisturbed, he was sure that he heard movement in the night. Not normal movement. It was a sound like a huge snake slithering through the house. When he heard it, he imagined horrible things. Nothing was ever there when he went to investigate, though he often thought he glimpsed something just out the corner of his eye. A pale foot or a mishapen shadow that would slink away as soon as he turned. He rarely slept and... When he did, he had haunted dreams. He soon realised he had not left the house in weeks except to go to the bank and buy groceries. He felt hemmed in. With Daniel acting mute, he hadn't had an actual conversation with anyone in weeks, so he called his mother. The connection was bad and her voice sounded faint, on the verge of being not there at all. I guess I'm okay, Ma, he said pausing to wipe the sweat from his palms and then make sure he could hear Daniel playing in the next room. But things have been a little rough. We had a break-in. Oh, how awful, Mum said. Did they take anything? Nah, just ran off. It was weird, though. I haven't really felt comfortable since then. Are you still working at that hospital? No, Ma, I left last year. You know that. Oh, well, have you been getting out? What about that nice woman you were seeing last year, the one who played the piano? James scowled. She was always asking that kind of thing. Didn't she know how hard it was being a single father? That he didn't have the time? 
He was about to say so when something made him pause. Ma, is there anyone else on the line? I don't think so. James was sure he heard it, though, the short, gasping sound of someone trying to hold their breath and failing. A cold feeling crept across the back of his neck. You sure nobody is listening on your other phone? Dear, there is no other phone. I'm on the cell. That's why the service is so bad. Then what is it? James stopped. If the sound wasn't coming from her end, then... He dropped the phone and raced to the hall. The extension hung on its hook undisturbed. Heart pounding, he hurled into the garage. The spare phone sat on the workbench. No one was in sight. But could they have been? Could someone have been here all along, listening to his phone call and then slithered away? Might they be here even now? The next day he took out the extra phone extensions. He even filled in the jacks with rubber cement. Daniel watched him work, eyes curious. But James offered no explanation. He began giving Daniel a light physical exam every week. His CNA training was a little rusty after a year on disability, but you never really forget. It was an absurd thing to do, of course. Even if there was a physical cause for Daniel's behaviour, it would be nothing he could discover this way. And he was aware on some level that it was a compulsive behaviour. Nevertheless, it made him feel better. One morning, James set the diaphragm of the stethoscope against Daniel's chest. He could not locate a heartbeat. He moved his hand in search of the right spot to no avail. Then to test it, he listened to his own heartbeat. It came through steady and clear. But when he checked Daniel again, he didn't hear anything. A thought came unbidden to him of the tin man in the Wizard of Oz, whose chest was as empty as a kettle. A sick feeling roiled his stomach. He threw the stethoscope down and grabbed Daniel by the shoulders, looking into his face. Daniel stared back with bright eyes. He even smiled a little with the corner of his mouth. James felt the tingle of tears. He swept his son up in his arms and hugged him, and Daniel hugged him back. Then James put his shirt back on him and sent him to play. The stethoscope, he decided, was broken. He threw it in the trash. Things got worse. James' terrors were no longer relegated to the long hours of the night. Now it seemed that some creeping, some skittering and scuttling, some unknowable noise in some dark corner or another filled every second of his day. The thought of how big the house really was started to weigh on him. There were so many rooms he wasn't in at any given time. So many places someone or something else could be. He imagined strange figures occupying the rest of his home when he wasn't around, melting into the walls or merging with the shadows whenever he turned on a light or opened a door. How would he know if they were there? How would he ever know? Soon he didn't even have to be outside of a room to imagine it. When he walked up the stairs he pictured pale figures lurking beneath them. When he went down the hall he pictured a crawling thing slithering behind the walls, shadowing his every step. If he sat too long in the same chair, he imagined that it was right behind him. And he was never comforted when he turned round and found nothing there, as he could only guess that it meant it had moved, swiftly and silently, behind him once again. Wherever he was not looking right now, that was where he imagined it to be. He was losing his mind, he knew. 
The only thing that helped him cling to sanity was that Daniel seemed undisturbed. Other than his muteness, his behaviour was perfectly normal. And whenever he seemed to sense that his father was troubled, he would hug him, or squeeze his hand, or even smile. Sometimes when he left the room, James cried. One night he found himself creeping around the house with no lights on at two o'clock in the morning. If the intruding thing had taken to violating his daytime activities, then he would get revenge by confronting it on its own terms. The night. And really, night was no more frightening to him now than day. They were almost interchangeable. He padded barefoot down the halls, up the stairs, in and out of disused rooms. Sometimes he stopped to listen, hoping to locate it by sound. It was a stealthy, creeping thing, he knew, but it was awkward at times, and it couldn't always keep its strangely shaped limbs from making their distinct, irregular footsteps. The smallest noise would give it away. There was one room he suspected it spent most of its time in, the spare bedroom. Not a bedroom at all, really, more like a closet, just large enough to accommodate a bed if one were so inclined. It was unpainted and uncarpeted and draughty, He'd always meant to fix it up. He didn't come in here very often because he disliked the bare, unused look of it. It made him think of a partially dissected corpse. He came in now, though. If the thing made its nest any one place in the house, this would be it. Of course, there was nothing there now. But that didn't mean there was nothing there. He cursed, running a hand through his damp, sweaty hair. What was he missing? How did it hide from him? What was its secret? He peered into the room's empty corners one by one, getting his face a few inches from the plaster and floorboards so that he could be certain, certain, that there was no space for it to conceal itself. The light bulb flickered. He froze. My God, he thought, it's on the ceiling. He pictured it crawling above him like a huge, pale lizard, That's how it gets around, he thought. That's how it escapes any time I should have it cornered. It scuttles up the wall and hides right over my head. He imagined it dangling down behind him like a spider. If I turn around, he thought it will be there, hanging with its face right next to mine. He held his breath. He did not want to turn around, but he had no choice. It was between him and the door. With a quiet sob, he rounded on his heels. Of course, he was alone. There was no man on the ceiling. He checked twice. Maybe it crawled out and was waiting for him in the hall, but when he checked there, the coast was clear once again. It should have been a relief, but it was not. After all, it had been in here somewhere. If the ceiling was not its trick, that just meant it was something else, something even more stranger, even more clever. He went to Daniel's room. He had not stopped checking on him at night like he always had. This time, though, rather than open the door, he listened at it first, pressing his ear against the grain of the cheap wood and holding his breath, terrified that he would hear a skittering sound on the other side of the barrier. What he heard instead shocked him more. Daniel was talking to someone. James recoiled for a second and... When he caught his breath, he all but kicked the door in. Daniel was already awake, indeed sitting up in bed, but he was not saying anything now. 
The light flashed on and James stalked halfway into the room before stopping, suddenly torn. What did he want more? To confirm that his son could speak again or to find whomever he was speaking to? The creak of a door hinge settled the matter for him. He ran to the closet and threw it open. There was nothing inside, or at least nothing that shouldn't be there. He swept aside clothes on their hangers, but nothing was hiding between them. Then he dragged the toy box out and emptied it onto the floor. Nothing. He combed along the bare walls and floor and, yes, the ceiling, pushing aside every last bit of rubbish and stray knick-knack so that he could be sure, absolutely sure, that nothing was hiding. All the while, Daniel watched him. After a few minutes, James was panting and covered with sweat and the closet was bare and there were neither intruders nor answers inside. It struck him as funny somehow and he started to laugh, very quietly. He kicked his son's toys out of the way as he went to sit down on the bed, dazed. He became aware all at once of several things. First being that he had not slept in days and was nowhere near his right mind. The second was how close he had come to really losing it for good. Tomorrow he decided they were both asleep until the afternoon and when they did wake up he and Daniel would get out of this creaky old house. No more staying cooped up like prisoners and no more checkups and no more dreams about monsters. He would even take the bars off the windows. It was time to get back to living like real people again. It was time to... James saw it when he brushed a hand through Daniel's hair. He pulled Daniel a little too roughly closer. His son acquiesced to the examination without fidgeting or complaint as James poured the side of his head, hoping that what he was seeing would somehow stop being apparent. He stared and stared until he ached from not blinking. There was no denying what was right in front of his eyes. Daniel was missing an ear. No, he realised with mounting nausea. Both ears... There was no injury, no incision, no mark where they should have been, simply smooth, blank flesh. As blank as Daniel's quiet, unperturbed demeanour, James swept him up in his arms and ran into the hall. He was not sure where he was going or what he meant to do when he got there. He just knew that there was now nothing more important than getting his son out of that house. But their path was cut off. A naked man sat in the hallway with his back to them. No, not a man. James recognised its stretched limbs and stooped shoulders. The pale thing squatted on its haunches, rocking back and forth like it was palsied. It almost seemed to be in pain. James hugged his son closer and backed away. Then he heard Daniel's voice. Daddy. James turned to Daniel and he heard the voice again. Daddy! But Daniel's lips hadn't moved. James looked back at the hunched figure. Its head jerked when it talked like a tick. Hello, Daddy. James' mouth went dry. It took several tries before he could speak. Don't call me that. It is, this voice's name, for you. Go away. Leave my family alone. But I am your family. The longer it talked, the more the voice became distorted and blurred, an icy feeling nestled in James' stomach. Who are you? Someone 
who came to visit. Why here? You invited me. James' heart thudded against the inside of his chest. Why? I had something you wanted. James licked his dry lips. You're lying. You don't have anything I want. I want you to leave. Leave and never come back. Who is Daniel's mother? James blinked. What? Who is Daniel's mother? What the hell kind of question is that? How old is Daniel? James blinked again. The thing's voice caused a pinching pain in the centre of his forehead. Stop asking me these things. When is Daniel's birthday? I don't know. What is his middle name? Shut up. What was his first word? I said shut up. James wanted to tear the thing apart with his bare hands. Only the heaviness of Daniel in his arms kept him where he was. You were alone. You wanted a son, so I made one for you. James' hands began to shake. That doesn't make sense. Made out of what? Out of myself. James' stomach turned over. But now I need those parts back. Daniel picked up James's shoulder to get his attention. Something was strange about Daniel's face. Danny, open your eyes. Daniel scrunched his eyes tighter. Open your eyes, Danny. Danny, Danny, open your eyes. Open your eyes. Daniel shook his head, trying to refuse. But he couldn't hold it forever. Eventually his eyelids flickered up and James saw the truth. Daniel's eyes were gone. James almost dropped him. For a second he wanted to throw his son down so that he could stop looking into those empty holes in his face. Daniel opened his mouth as if to speak, but of course he had no voice. He is coming back to be part of me again. No, 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 give him back to me, give him back. I cannot, it has been too long. I warned you this would happen. You're lying, you're lying, you're a liar, give me my son back, give him back. I did not lie. I warned you, he could not exist forever, but you do not remember. You can only remember what I want you to. You forget all the times we have talked. Daniel felt like a doll or an empty bag. His hair was falling out, disappearing before it touched the ground. His hands vanished into his sleeves and his feet rolled up inside his pants cuffs. James cradled the tiny, shapeless thing. Tears streamed down his face. Soon he held a pile of empty clothes, and then those, too, were gone. He looked around the house. Toys disappeared. Photos vanished from their frames. Daniel's little shoes were no longer by the door. James turned towards Daniel's room and confronted a wall where the door should be. He groped the blank surface, fingers scrambling. He hit his head against the wall. The pain didn't feel real. Why did you do this? It was what you wanted, and I learned so much. This is impossible. People will ask. People will wonder. The police, the hospitals, the people in the neighbourhood. They have already forgotten him. They only remembered what I wanted them to, like you. James pressed his hands against his aching skull. Will I at least remember him after this? You can try, but your mind will fail you, now that everything he was is part of me again. James sat on the floor, looking at the blank wall. 
Out of the corner of his eye he saw the thing creep towards him and even felt its wet hand on his shoulder. But he did not look at it. If I won't remember any of this, he said, then why tell me? Because a father should know. And then James was alone. Abigail worried about James sometimes. When they met a year ago, he said that he had never been married and he would never had kids. But there was a certain pained expression he assumed when he said the last part. Abigail knew that look. She would met parents who would lost children before. You learned to recognise it. And there were other things about him that worried her too. Sometimes she would find him staring at a particular spot on the wall. Brow furrowed in concentration. He did not seem to realise what he was doing. And of course there was the insomnia and the sleepwalking to consider too. Yes, there was lots to worry about, but she loved him all the same. James still said he'd never had kids and neither had she. She long wanted one, but it was impossible and she worried that James wouldn't stay with a woman who couldn't be a mother though he constantly assured her that it was not so. There were times, and more and more often of late, they were the nights when James took to sleepwalking, and even Abigail imagined that she heard strange scuttling noises in the house and saw impossible shapes in dark corners. When she thought she would do anything, absolutely anything, if it meant having a little daughter for she and James to raise... And at those moments, she became truly afraid. But she never knew why. Chapter 9 